That is what our continued prayer is. The purpose of this season of prayer, this month of prayer, is to say, Lord, guide us. Lord, lead us by by your hand. That picture of a small child being led by the hand of someone who is wise and knows the way. And it's humbling, but we need that. So it's good that we sing of these. He will lead. We are, we are confident. He promises that he will. And he is leading in this passage today through the power of the Spirit in a unique way to his followers, not unique to us. Uh, we have to be careful of this being just kind of old hat or um, something that we take for granted. The Spirit's working in our lives. But this would be, he, the Spirit would come upon the followers of Christ and accomplish things that were unique and amazing and powerful for this specific time. As God says, this is my church that I have created. And uh, with the head being my son. And so when something this significant takes place, there needs to be powerful signs and, and a powerful announcement that something grand and amazing has taken place. And we're going to see that today. Unfortunately, um, these things get misunderstood. And some of the things that God is doing at the beginning of this church ministry to announce to the world of his plan get um, misunderstood as prescriptive for all of church history and even till today. And that's not what's going on here, but at the same time, remembering that the spirit that works in powerfully among these men and women works powerfully in us today and enables us today. So turn to Acts chapter 1, and we're now in verse 15. Again, we finish the Gospel of John. Jesus reinstated Peter for service. What happened after that? That's what Luke tells us in the book of Acts. It's a sequel to Luke's Gospel. And we're going to see, as we continue in the next chapter or so, and we're going to go on into the second chapter today, in the next few weeks, we're going to see the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave these men. He commissioned them, and then they received power. They will be empowered through the coming of the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim him to the world. There'll be no more shrinking. There'll be no more questioning. They'll be confident, and we'll see that even in Peter's demeanor as they take care of a problem, even before the Spirit comes, that needs to be dealt with. We'll see a confident yet careful Peter. That's not something that we've seen before as he seeks God's wisdom in this problem that they face. Peter in particular, we're going to see a Spirit-filled leader and bold witness for Jesus as we continue through this passage. But a reminder that the Holy Spirit when we submit to him, can do a powerful work in us as well. So we're going to see the Spirit's coming at Pentecost this morning. And let's just read that particular part of the passage. It's chapter 2. We'll go back to the middle of chapter 1 in a minute. Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were, sit, where they were sitting. sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit is empowering and doing all of this within these disciples. Lord, thank you. Even though these many of these are unique experiences to the beginning of your church, we know that the same Spirit operates in us today. And because we have the totality of your word, because you've announced and you've allowed the church to continue and, and to grow, literally covering the whole world in hundreds of years, thousands of years, that we don't need these special gifts anymore. They, you, they, they fulfill the purpose that you had for them. And yet, the Holy Spirit still will work powerfully in us. We pray that. We pray that we would be filled with wonder ourselves and encouragement that we don't do this alone. The Spirit enables us and gives us wonderful words of life that we can proclaim. So help us to be encouraged by this account today and what you're doing in the lives, what you did in the lives of your followers and in Peter let us know that that spirit is ready as well to give us boldness to proclaim you, proclaim Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, we're going to see the spirit working throughout all of this. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. The spirit directs by the agency of the scriptures, as you would expect, as the Holy Spirit has enabled the writers of scripture then he graciously also enables us to understand those words and understand scripture. And we see that concept even before he comes upon them in that mighty powerful way that we just read. We see in verse 15 of chapter 1 that there still is one dilemma, one issue, and that is that a uh, betrayer's replacement needs to take place. But even before that, Peter makes it clear and just in case we were wondering on this whole issue of Judas Iscariot, well, that Jesus somehow, you know, even meaning well, Judas obviously had a lot of gifts, as we talked about this morning, a lot of natural talents. He was able to handle money well, seemingly. Did Jesus kind of pick him in good faith, but regret that choice afterwards? And Peter makes it clear here that no, this was actually Judas' betrayal was prophesied in the Old Testament. This was all a part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus chose Judas, knowing what he would do in the end. And yet God worked all of this out for his purposes. So a follower's denial was prophesied by the Spirit. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up. Remember, they're praying. 120 followers in some sort of upper room, whether it was the same one where they met with Jesus before his crucifixion. We don't know for sure, but it's in Jerusalem. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. He makes it clear, and he's referring here to the Old Testament. Yes, the Holy Spirit um, or brought forth the Old Testament from the writers as well. The Old and the New Testament spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, particularly. And even as we're going through the life of David, we're reminded that David didn't come up with all those psalms on his own, but the Holy Spirit directed him in writing all, all that he wrote and all that we were gifted with in his psalms. So the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those arrested, to those who arrested Jesus. So Peter's now taking on the lead role, and he's addressing, giving a solution to a problem this group faces. And that's basically, they're incomplete. There's only 11 of the initial um, 12 disciples. Um, And he is emphasizing, as I just mentioned, in the beginning in front of these folks here, that they have a dilemma. There is one missing but that the awful betrayal of Judas by of Jesus by Judas, even though it came as a shock and surprise, and they're probably still trying to comprehend how could Judas do this? It wasn't any surprise to God. Oh no. It says it was prophesied all the way back by David himself through the direction of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus and Judas was chosen. Here's mind-boggling by Jesus. And given great unique privileges of serving with the others. Even though the Bible makes it clear that we have the even greater privilege today um, in, in having the completed word of God and being able to proclaim that. It was a distinct privilege, was it not, to be one of the 12 disciples that were with him all the time in his earthly ministry. And Judas had that unique privilege and he threw it away. Verse 17, he was numbered among us. It was a lot of his share in his ministry. He was given opportunity to participate, and he did participate. And again, uh, let's be clear here. Peter's making this clear. This wasn't a mistaken choice on the part of Jesus. Well, you know, know, picking 12, there's always going to be one rotten apple in the bunch. And so, you know, what what are you going to do? No, this was prophesied. Fulfillment of judgment from Old Testament scripture. And we do have this verse in 18 that you kind of wish we could just skip up, skip over here. Why, why do we even need to have this in here? And the reason is it describes the awfulness of the judgment that Judas experienced because he threw away his opportunity to minister and in the end betrayed And so as awful and as graphic as this verse is, it's included in here to remind us of the awful judgment that he experienced. And this meshing this with what Matthew tells us may seem a a little difficult. What does Matthew's gospel tell us about what Judas, his his, um, experience in this story? Well, Judas tried to return the money, remember, out of guilt to the priests at the temple there. And they refused, and what did he do? He tossed the money to the temple floor, and later on, the priest then used it to buy a field. Now, we're not told in Matthew, but we're told here, then, you combine these two together, and it seems that this very field ended up being the one that Judas hung himself, and then somehow, again, not to be too graphic here, just trying to explain this, but his body fell from that height, and what happened to it afterwards is described here, and that's why this is called graphically the field of blood. And so verse 18, now this man acquired a field. Now this just kind of ties together. Judas throwing the money down and the priest picking it back up and buying the field with a reward for his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so that field was called in their own language, Elkadah. 
Elkadama, and that's Aramaic, meaning the field of blood. Awful end, tragic end to one who had so much privilege and potential and threw it all away. But folks, isn't it a reminder that if we're even here today playing along, playing the part of a Christian, but we're not, we're not really a child of God, there's going to come a greater judgment later on. Don't fool around with this. Don't be a Judas. This is what this, why we're told this. This is reminding us. This is calling out, proclaiming, don't do this. Don't be a Judas. The consequences are awful. Well, Peter said that this had been prophesied, in a sense, through the Psalms. Well, what Psalms were those? Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms. And first of all, he quotes Psalm 69, uh, verses Verse 25, when he says, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. I'll read to you the initial psalm, starting at verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your anger, burning anger, overtake them. And both of these are really imprecatory psalms, which is calling upon God's judgment upon those, his enemies that would reject him. And so, again, this very vivid sense, Peter is saying, these imprecatory psalms were, um, were fulfilled in Judas' betrayal of Christ. Stern, sobering things here. Verse 25, may their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. That's what we just read from Acts. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Describing what these enemies would do. And David is saying, may uh, you... Deal with them in your anger and wipe them out, basically. And then the second quote, and let another take his offices from Psalm 109, 7 through 9, actually verse 8. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few, and may another take his office. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Again, David pronouncing these judgments upon the enemies of God who have rejected him. Sobering things. And he says here that these fulfilled what happened to Judah, or Judas. And so, even as awful as all this was, Peter reminds us, this was all a part of God's plan. God knew what was going to happen. And we're going to see the other side of this in a minute, that the responsibility was still on Judas. And the two sides of this coin. But this follower's denial was not surprised. Jesus didn't make a mistake. It was prophesied by the Spirit. And what is the thing that they have to deal with now? All well, a betrayer's replacement needs to be directed by God. And so verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, the beginning of John's baptism ministry there, until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. They're seeking a replacement, but there's some unique qualifications for this individual. You can't just choose anybody. For, and, and they are choosing a replacement to be one of the 12 apostles, the apostles, the sent ones. And what were these qualifications? This helps us understand why this office is not still legitimate today. Because 
what these men, the qualifications, they had to be throughout the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry through his resurrection, and probably in context here, also the ascension as well. These are the things that needed to take place. Well, let me ask you this. Why did Judas need a replacement? Why couldn't they have just stuck with the, with the 11? And, and I should, I'll mention this too. Do you already sense that we have a different Peter here than what we had even at the end of John? Confident, but careful. He's seeking God's will in this. And so that's good to see because there are some, there's still some scholars that say, well, you know, Peter was well-meaning, but really they didn't need to do this. And maybe Paul was supposed to be the 12th apostle and Peter and the other disciples just kind of jumped the gun and well, okay, we got another one. And so Paul's like, well, that's okay. I still can be an apostle. I guess I just won't be one of the 12. Well, that's not what's going on. First of all, Peter makes it clear from Psalm 109 that let another take his office justified their finding a replacement. I don't know if you've ever heard that political um, joke. Well, not really a joke, but I've heard people apply, uh, pastors apply that verse to politicians. May his days be few and may another take his office. And understand the frustration when people say that, right? And we say, sometimes we say an amen to that. But this was in God's plan a justification of the disciples replacing Judas and having the 12 again. But Jesus chose 12 men, right, to carry out his plans. And so these men realized through Scripture and through the choice of Jesus, they were obligated to keep faithful to that number, that there needed to be 12. And remember, what did Paul say, by the way, of his apostleship? That he was one born out of time. Paul made it clear that his apostleship was different from the other 12. So there's no, there's no jumping the gun here. There's no uh, sense of, of Peter's again getting too eager uh, before the Spirit comes upon them and doing something that he shouldn't have done here. No. And these, remember, these folks as well have been praying carefully, praying fervently. And we're going to see again, they're seeking God's counsel in this. They're not just coming up with this need as a there's one other aspect to this if you've read remember this in revelation why did judas need a replacement remember the description of new of the new jerusalem having 12 gates named with the 12 tribes of israel right and then foundations described as the 12 apostles to correspond to the 12 tribes of israel in the new jerusalem and it's a picture of a seamless unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now the New Jerusalem, there was an importance to have a 12th apostle. And so these men recognized this. The qualifications put forth in verse 23, they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, his other name, who is also called Justice. The guy had three names. And then Matthias. And again, they're not jumping into things here. There is much prayer going on and seeking God's will. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Notice the last part of that. That Judas made his own choice is what it's described here, right? Judas turned aside. 
to go to his own place described here as it was his choice to make. Now, isn't that amazing? Again, the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. Peter makes it clear. God knew about this. It was in his sovereign plan, what would happen to Judas. And yet at the same time, Judas chose to go his own way. Peter presents both here. Again, how do we make those coincide? Well, we can't. God does, and we just accept that as true. And we marvel at it. But here, again, is another sobering description. What this really is saying, Judas turned aside from the right way. And what is his own place, folks? It's eternal punishment and hell that he chose. That ought to sober all of us. And make us, again... This picture here, you don't want to choose the path of Judas. Don't be a fake Christian. Don't be something you're not. But make sure that you have a true relationship with him as these others do. And they're going before the Lord. They, they're, they're acknowledging, Lord, you're the only one that knows who we should pick. You know hearts here. You know what we should do. So please show us. And how do they choose? Verse 26, they cast lots for them. And that's an acceptable way to make decisions in the Old Testament context. And this is probably, from what I can tell, the last time that the people of God use this. We see this used many times. Remember, I don't think this is anything like the Urim and the Thummim that David used. But many times lots were used um, with writings and different things on them. And God used them with his people to help them make decisions. This is probably the last time this was used because the Holy Spirit would come upon them and be able to guide them in a much better way. But God is guiding them, and it makes clear the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I don't think we should look at that as saying that now that Joseph or Sabbath or Justice, he was deficient in some way. God knew his heart, and he wasn't. Well, no. It was God's sovereign choice, and it was Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 and interestingly, we never hear of him again. This is the only mention we have. They will meet him. But here we have the followers of Jesus acting out of wisdom, seeking God's will. And God makes it clear. Now they are a group again. They're 12. And they're ready for the spirit to come upon them and the followers. And for the church to begin. And so the spirit now enables by the filling of his presence in a unique and marvelous way that had never happened before. Remember in the Old Testament, um, the filling of the spirit was described as the spirit of the Lord coming upon someone. And they were enabled for the duty that God um, had chosen for them to take place. Sometimes it was faithful followers of the Lord. Sometimes it was those that even turned out to be enemies of God. But the Holy Spirit would come upon them, enable them for a specific service God had for them. But now, in a much more full and wonderful way, the Holy Spirit comes upon all of God's children, enabling them to be useful for him in this inauguration of the church. Jesus' followers were fully filled with the Spirit. And in this miraculous first-time event, we have described now in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Have you ever thought, by the way, of what Pentecost is? It was still celebrated today. It's a major feast within Judaism. Let me just give you a few quick um, descriptions of what it is. Pentecost is the second of the annual harvest festivals. It would be handled in the fall, and it would come 
50 days after Passover, because Penta means five, 50 days after Passover. So we have a good idea then of the time of the crucifixion and then the 40 days that Jesus was with his followers before his ascension. And now 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, um, this is taking place. It was one of three. There was three pilgrimage festivals that devout Jews would come from all over the known world. And, and they were at the time then in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And many, if you think about it, if they'd already come for Passover, it was another 50 days. Why go all the way home? That many would stay for Pentecost. And so there many times it, uh, this would be one of the most, um, the, the greatest number of visitors that Jerusalem would experience was at a particular festival some historians say as much as two or three million people could crowd the city. That almost blows my mind. Um, but it, when there was there was a lot of Jews from all over the world. No coincidence, right? God planned all of this that so many people would be there. It's also known as Shabbat, the Feast of Weeks, and that's described in Leviticus 23 and the Day of First Fruits. And it was a time of Thanksgiving where traditionally the Book of Ruth would be read. And all that God did for Ruth, and this may sound strange, well, actually, uh, unleavened bread was waved in front of the temple as a sign of harvest blessings, and dairy products were eaten. Well, why would that be? To remember that God gave his people a land flowing with milk and honey, all of these things. And then later on, it became a time where the Jews celebrated this. And it seems to be, this is probably accurate, the date of God's gift of his law to his people and inaugurated the nation of Israel. Well, why is that important? Because now God is inaugurating a new entity, the church, on, the day, on, on this day of Pentecost, this feast. And a new covenant that doesn't include just Jews, but they're going to find out pretty soon here in the book of Acts that it includes Gentiles too. And remember what... Um, um, Rob read a little bit earlier from Isaiah, talking about the branch of Jesus coming that was initially fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in his earthly ministry. But the final fulfillment of that described was the kingdom that Jesus will one day enter in. But it's described as the spirit of God working through him and people from all over the world understanding truth. And right here, we're going to have a preview of that in the coming of the Holy Spirit upon his followers so that people from all over the world will hear the word of truth in their own language, as we're about ready to see here. A lot of themes um, going through a meaningful aspect of why Pentecost was the time that God chose. It was a great spiritual harvest that would very soon be celebrated, not just a physical harvest. And I got many of these themes, by the way. If you know, if you know a man named Craig Hartman, um, a, a Jew who is a conservative fundamentalist who has a wonderful ministry in New York City. He's written a book called Through Jewish Eyes. And a lot of this perspective I, I got from him, very helpful. So they're all together. The day of Pentecost, a lot of meaning involved here, all together in one place. And all of a sudden there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. And rested on each one of them. Why the rushing wind and the fire? Well, it's certainly uh, made for an entrance, an unmistakable, amazing entrance. But 
all throughout the Old Testament, God's presence is um, illustrated and specified by rushing wind. Remember, even with Elijah and many other, the, the, um, the events of, of the Exodus and different things, and fire was a sign of God's glory in visions and different things. So really, it's very fitting that as the Spirit comes upon these individuals, that there is the reminder of the presence of God and this rushing wind and this fire uh, that all comes together. And then, as well, I think there's a picture here of purity and power as the appearance of flames flash above each in this group. You know, as a young child, and I heard this, and I would see the pictures in my children's Bible study book about these followers and these little flames above them. And, you know, I always kind of wonder, I wonder why they're here get catch on fire. Or I wondered if, you know, if another fossil reached over and tried to touch it, I'll burn his hand or something. You know, things that kids think about because it just seems so odd. Well, folks, best to think of this as an appearance of flame. The followers, everybody was fully aware that God's presence and that what Jesus had promised, the coming of the Spirit, was upon them, and it was a time of marvelous joy and wonder as this took place, and a picture that the Holy Spirit had rested on each of them, had filled them, and was preparing them for service. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's that miraculous sign, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, these tongues, let's talk about this. We also have these tongues, our tongues described in 1 Corinthians 14. We need to understand that these tongues here are different from those in 1 Corinthians 14. How, what's the difference? Well, these tongues, they're languages that are immediately understood by others that speak those languages around them. As they spill out of the upper room, the room here, and go out into the streets of Jerusalem, immediately people understand well, that person's talking about God, the marvelous works of God, the gospel in my own language. The tongues described in 1 Corinthians 14 involve an interpreter. And there's a lot, we don't have time to go into that today, but there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of different interpretations. Some think that Paul is saying that the um, gibberish and the need for an interpreter means that this, that form of tongues weren't even legitimate. There is something different about that. But regardless, even if God was using the form that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, which was unrecognizable without an interpreter, you had to have an interpreter there for people to understand. So the whole point of tongues is to help people understand God's word. And certainly that's the case here. These are tongues. These are different languages, not creative gibberish. And if people get into an argument, you know, with that today, or there's, you know, there's people that still try to practice tongues. I had a friend that came out of a Pentecostal background and kind of gave us a little summary or a little example of what they would do when they would speak in tongues today. And you couldn't understand any of it. It was very strange to hear. Um, so it, when you hear that, it's like, well, if, if you want to say tongues are legitimate, then really it needs, if you want to say that the, 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 the gift of tongues extends to today, then you need to recognize as well that it's different languages spoken. 
And you don't ever hear that really, or not that I'm aware of, with modern groups today that speak in tongues of their different languages. You know, somebody speaking Spanish over here, speaking German over here that they've never studied it before. Um, if you find some a situation where that's happening, let me know. I suppose, you know, it'd be possible. God could decide to do whatever he wanted to do, but we just don't have that. It makes it clear that that was for this specific time. But it really was remarkable for those hearing this, and it caught their attention. But remember that this is all the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives them utterance, and they spill out into Jerusalem, verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout, devout men and women, from every nation under heaven. We already described why. This is Pentecost. You have Jews from all over the world speaking all kinds of different languages. And as this sound, the multitude came together, they were bewildered. Really the idea of astonishment and wonder because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Somehow it was apparent to them, even not having met this group, the apostles and, and the folks with them, that they were mostly from Galilee, whether it was their appearance or the way that they talked. Basically, they're kind of saying here, how do these commoners, how in the world are they able to speak so fluently in so many different languages? There are people, my wife included, who have studied languages for years, and she is able to speak Spanish. She would not say fluently, but she impresses me fluently enough. And I'm amazed when I hear her talk. It's just like, wow, that, that's beautiful. Well, she's taken time and years of study to get, you know, be able to be fluent in that way. I could never do that. And sometimes I'll joke around and just kind of spurt out a Spanish word or try to read it. And, you know, she'll roll her eyes at me because it's obvious. I have no idea what I'm saying or what it even means. And so and then what really bothers me is when I make up my own Spanish words. That's, oh, <laughs> you hate it. <laughs> because it's obvious that, that I have not had that training. I can't speak that well. So all of a sudden, if I come before you and I'm speaking beautiful Spanish, that's even, um, you know, far beyond what my wife can speak, you know, that's not me. That's the work of something powerful and supernatural, the work of the spirit. And these folks are looking at these Galileans and saying, this, this, I won't say the word ain't, but this isn't normal. There's something amazing going on. Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us? We understand what they're saying. And I think best to think of that these folks are going out and they're telling people about Jesus, the mighty works of God. And then they give a long list here. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia. Almost sounds like I'm speaking in tongues saying these words. Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond the Serene and visitors from Rome. And it's interesting, the list ends on Rome. And the book will end on Rome. That's literally in an initial fulfillment here. All the world, this list moves from the eastern part of the world to the western part of the world and ends in Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Jews and those that have converted to Judaism, Cretans, hey, we know what those folks are. We've been studying Titus, all right? And Arabians. And we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And these people are astonished and amazed. The words here are astonished, really perplexed. How can this be? And saying to one another, what does this mean? There's two responses to this. 
some realize this is supernatural. This isn't normal. And there's a reason for this, and we don't know what it is, but God is doing something here. What does this mean? What is God doing? And there are others that hear this, and, and because they don't understand it, they decide to mock it, verse 13. Others mocking said, oh, they're just filled with new wine. They're just drunkards. And don't we still have, by the way, that response today to the gospel? Some are interested. I want to hear more. I, what is this? And the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, and we pray, you know, and, and they, they get an interest. And even as we, we have people described in our list, our prayer list, the people that we're talking to, we're praying for each of these, and that would be their response, that they want to know more as we share the gospel with them. And that's the response we want. But unfortunately, folks, the other side of this that we shouldn't be surprised by is there's those that mock and are offended and make fun and make light of these things. Oh, they don't know what they're talking. Oh, they're crazy. They just use, you know, the Bible and this as a crutch. They, they can't live life on their own. And whatever people say today, they mock just like they mocked back then. And it's a reminder to me that we, we still need to faithfully proclaim God's word regardless of reactions that we get today, just like these folks did. The Holy Spirit enables us, not with tongues and different things, but enables us to proclaim. And there's a lot of different responses. But God's work and the work of the newly formed church and the power of the Spirit are doing exactly what Jesus told them they would. And these disciples are changed. They're not the same old, they're not the same um, doubting, nervous, um, self-centered men that they used to be, and, and women. But the Holy Spirit is doing a miraculous work. How do we know that? Well, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks as we carefully go through Peter's message. He's going to preach an amazing and a significant message where we see many, many come to know Christ through the power of the Spirit. But folks, as we finish up today, let's just make this real practical. How do we apply this? Looking for apostles and the gift of tongues. You know, should we be looking for apostles today? Should we be expecting the gift of tongues? Well, I've kind of already answered those things. Those were special gifts given to the church in this paradigm-shifting moment as God introduced his church, the body of Christ, to the world. And just as the thunder and the lightnings and the earthquakes introduced Israel to Yahweh, and his program through them, this amazing moment of the beginning of the church needed to be highlighted by these miraculous occurrences and signs and these things going on. And they needed leaders that were uniquely qualified that had been with Jesus to lead this church forward, help them, um, and, and um, help them to carry out the mission, the mission that God had called them to. Those aren't necessary today. We shouldn't look for those. So what's the application then? That we still need to rely on the Spirit today for wisdom and our choices that he gives us. We don't have to choose apostles today, but we have lots of other things that we question and we wonder, Lord, what would you have us to do? And we're praying about these things. And we rely on the Spirit's guidance and the wisdom and the guidance through his word. We rely and we ask him for understanding and for evangelistic opportunity, as we talk to people in our own native language, we still need the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that effectively. We can't go it alone. 
The Spirit is just as crucial and important for us today as it was for them back then. And we can trust because we have all of God's Word, that we have all the Spirit that we need. And Jesus has given us everything that we need to accomplish the Great Commission today. That should encourage us and fill our hearts with joy. Father, help us to uh, acknowledge and remember that we have all the spirit that we need today in this wonderful moment where the church, you, you created the church essentially, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. We have enjoyed and had the benefits of this ever since. Help us not to take that for granted. And Lord, this awful warning about what happened to Judas, I pray that there would be no one in the sound of my voice that would still be faking it who's acting as Judas did as a Christian and going through all the motions, but has not truly put their faith and trust in you. May they today turn from that course before they have awful judgment on them. Let them come to me or one of our leadership and get that right. Come before trust Christ today. For those of us who have done that, help us to fully submit and depend upon the Spirit's work in our lives. For our decisions as a ministry, for our evangelistic fervor, and for understanding of your word, we need that. And you've given us all we need. So help us submit. Help us not to grieve the Spirit in our lives, but submit to him in all things. And we can see powerfully um, a powerful work done in this community through our efforts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we desire that, and we pray for that. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.